Our reading is from Mark chapter 1, starting at verse 29. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the house of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who were ill and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak, because they knew who he was. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so that I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he travelled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Jesus commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to see him from everywhere. Helen, thanks very much indeed for uh, reading for us. Now, before we come to uh, have a look at this passage, let's just take a moment uh, to pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, I just pray that uh, uh, as we come to your word uh, this evening, uh, would you be at work in our hearts? I pray that you would open our eyes, you would unstop our ears. I speak to our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're continuing our series uh, through Mark's Gospel uh, this evening, and as we mentioned before, the first half of the book of Mark is really focusing on the question of who is this Jesus? Who is he? Um, And uh, as the book opens up, uh, we come to moments uh, like this where we see uh, not only glimpses of who Jesus is, but also we start to see a little glimpse of what he's come to do. And we're in that uh, sort of section uh, this evening. Uh, And as uh, we have a look at this, I just want to lift out uh, two things uh, for us uh, to reflect on. uh, And uh, hopefully we'll see with greater clarity uh, who Jesus is. And actually that that truth might have the power through prayer uh, to transform uh, our lives. And that's what we're going to be looking at uh, this evening. A healing uh, that reveals the kingdom uh, and prayer uh, at the heart uh, of the king. So there's healing that reveals uh, the king. Now, we've already seen as we start to open up this gospel uh, that Mark's very clear, isn't he, about who this Jesus is. Uh, He opens his declaration, he opens his gospel uh, with the declaration uh, that this is the good news of Jesus Christ, 
the Son of God. And we saw that there are witnesses that support this. Uh, And last week, Colin helped us to see that this Jesus comes with authority. Jesus is the king. And the king has broken into our time and our space. And kings, uh, all rulers of any sort, press their own mark, their own distinctions uh, on the nations that they rule. Uh, That the people in their kingdom will start to model the character of their king. And you can see that, can't you, right through uh, through history. Uh, the lives of people shaped by their own leaders, a brutal dictator of a nation, uh, will lead a nation through force and fear, polluting the nation with those characteristics. And we can think of leaders uh, around the world uh, today uh, where their characteristics start to infect and pollute uh, the whole country. And we see a microcosm of that uh, in our own homes uh, and uh, also uh, maybe in our own places of work. Uh, At one stage, I worked for uh, a small fund. We had uh, partners who were based in New York, uh, and they were amongst uh, the most exacting, the most uh, cruel and belittling people uh, that I've ever come across. Uh, The people that worked in the New York office uh, under these partners, uh, they started to behave more and more and more like their kings. Maybe you've seen that uh, in your own place of work as well. Uh, In our reading, we see something of the character and power of the one that Mark calls the king. He certainly has the power. He's the power uh, to call, power and wisdom uh, in opening up and teaching as no one has taught before. Uh, But we also see something more of the kingship of Jesus and what his kingdom's going to be like. Uh, As the king steps out into his world, we see evil spirits recognize Jesus and submit to him. As Jesus comes into the world, sickness is banished. As Jesus steps into the world, people are made whole. With Jesus in the world, the king in the world, the world reflects more and more of the goodness of Christ. It's like the kingdom breaking in. Uh, That creation uh, is responding to the physical closeness uh, and presence of Jesus the king. That as Jesus steps into the world, as Jesus acts, that the nature of the kingdom is being revealed. We see that there's healing of diseases. That the world's made perfect, but it has, is being made perfect. Excuse me, it's being made perfect, but it still is polluted by sin. But gradually, as Jesus walks, the aroma of Christ is overcoming it. Now, I walk, uh, our dogs round the local woods and quite often we come across uh, anthills. Um, usually they're quite quiet when I arrive. Um, you can't really see very much that's happening. Uh, but you can see the mound. You can see the distorting effect of the anthill. There's a, a lump there, a mound that stands proud above the ground. However, as my dogs tear into these anthills, then all of a sudden, thousands upon thousands of these ants suddenly spring out. And that's probably not a bad analogy for the way that the demons respond to Christ's presence. As he walks, the demons are disturbed and they are brought to the surface. And in verse 32 through 34, we read this. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. 
And Colin last week opened up for us, didn't he, the uh, healing of the uh, demon-possessed man in the synagogue. And now we see that as a result of teaching with authority, that the word of Jesus spreads like wildfire across the land. You can imagine the scene, can't you? Uh, the countryside is absolutely awash with people all making a beeline toward Jesus, coming in their droves, carrying the sick uh, where they had to be carried, all to be healed by Jesus. Uh, as Mark says, all the sick and the demon-possessed were brought to Jesus. And Jesus heals. You can imagine the scene, can't you, as Jesus walks in to the local hospital. He empties the A&E department. Breaks amended, bleedings stop. Infections driven out, diseased hearts made new, cancer banished. The hospital deserted. The ambulances lie quiet and the crash carts are locked away. The doctors wait, no one comes. The kingdom looks like the king. A place of wholeness, a place where there is no disease, there is no sickness, no death. The demons are banished. The world starts to lean toward Jesus, leaning toward the way that it's supposed to be. Clearly, not fully, but chinks are seen in the darkness and the light floods in to reveal what the kingdom of the king is like. But think now about the king who has prayer at his heart. Now we're told in verse 35 that the following morning Jesus rises early. <clears throat> it was still dark and he departs to a desolate place and there Jesus prays. Now Jesus' response to the healing and the teaching ministry and to the mission that he's come to fulfill is prayer. It's to draw near to his heavenly father in prayer. The disciples, on the other hand, they have a slightly different take. They've been called by Jesus to be his disciples, and they've given up, they think, a great deal to do that. They've given up livelihood, and they've given up family as well. And as they follow Jesus, you can just imagine, you can just imagine what they are thinking, can't you? Hmm? They watch Jesus teach amazingly, drive out demons, and heal countless numbers of people. And as they fall asleep that night in their beds, they're imagining, aren't they, their prime time interview with Oprah. Yeah, publishing that book on the New York Times bestseller list. Maybe even an invitation to the coronation next week. Yeah, that's what's going through their mind. They backed a winner. Now they awake in the morning and Jesus is gone. Everyone, we're told, is looking for Jesus and he's gone. The goose that they thought was going to lay a golden egg for them is nowhere to be seen. And in verse 36, we're told that they go out to look for him. Now, the word that's translated here, uh, look, from the Greek, has a real intensity uh, to it. Uh, it means to pursue uh, to chase down, to run down. Uh, there's a desperate desire to seize the target, to gather it for oneself. That's what the word look here means. So right at the outset of the gospel, we see a glimmer of the heart of the disciples 
Their heart is for themselves. And Jesus' heart, well, that's for his Father. And here we see the focus and the importance of prayer. As Jesus comes forward to do what he's come to do, he models for us, doesn't he, the importance and the centrality of prayer. And this hasn't been a ten-minute quiet time. Uh, Jesus hasn't wandered off into the wilderness while it was dark and then only been out there for ten minutes. We're told that the disciples woke up and then wandered out. It's probably been a couple of hours while he's been gone. Now, we're all used to, aren't we, I'm sure, uh, praying intensely when we are hard-pressed on every side. But what about like this, where it looks as if everything's going really, really well? Ministries are growing. People, maybe at work, want to ask you about Jesus. When broken relationships are restored, when our children make godly decisions. I wonder, are we in those positive moments as fervent in prayer as we are when we're hard-pressed? Now, Colin and Nathan this morning looked at the joy and the importance of prayer. And let me ask you a question following, following on from that. Now, what about our prayer life, your prayer life uh, and mine? Can we say that we find that a joy? Could we say that we find our prayer life nourishing, life-giving, sustaining? We've heard uh, this evening of a way that that can sustain us, as Emma's spoken. Or maybe our prayer life is, well, it's dry. It's a bit by rote. And when people speak of a relationship with our Heavenly Father, we're not too sure what that looks like. So let me share a little bit about uh, my own uh, experiences. Uh, maybe it will resonate uh, with, uh, with some of you. Uh, when I was first uh, becoming a Christian, uh, one of the things that I really enjoyed, uh, one of the highlights of my day, was uh, the train ride up to work and the train ride back. Uh, an hour of un- uninterrupted studying, reading the Bible, and praying. Uh, my faith was young, uh, life was busy, but in that time, in those moments, I had times of really great refreshment. Uh, life was uh, super busy, traveling early to work, and oftentimes spending many weeks of the year traveling uh, around the world. My prayer life was, if you like, providing me with Water and refreshment, a bit like the marathon runner last week, tearing past the drink station, grabbing a cup of water and thrusting it uh, broadly uh, toward their face. You know, like the runners, I had miles and miles to go. I had aches in places I didn't even know I had places and I only had a wet face to keep me going. And for a period, I thought that this was the sort of nourishment, this was the only sort of nourishment uh, that prayer would give. Not really relationship, not really nourishment. And and because of that, I sometimes found prayer hard, I found it uh, dry, uh, and I found it draining. And there can be a temptation, can't there, when our only experience of prayer is like that, when it's dry, that we can be tempted, can't we, to give up. To allow the busyness of our lives uh, to take over, to focus on the miles ahead yet to be run, to not work at our prayer life. Just to accept that all you're going to get is a wet face. That the pressing needs of the day need to be attended to first and then prayer squeezed in later, but it never is. 
Uh, If that's you, uh, then know that you're experiencing what many people through the centuries have experienced. Uh, In 1535, the reformer Martin Luther uh, wrote to his barber to encourage him to pray, to teach him how to pray, to encourage him to keep going, uh, recognising that it's hard, but that he mustn't let the busyness of his day get in the way. And he writes to his barber, he says, uh, yet we must be careful not to break the habit of true prayer and imagine other works to be necessary, which, after all, are nothing of the kind. Thus, at the end, we become lax and lazy, cool and listless toward prayer. The devil who besets us is not lazy or careless, but we are often disinclined to the spirit of prayer. So the question for us is this. How do we unlock prayer so that it's a joy? How do we unlock prayer so that it's a joy? Now, I want to encourage us this evening. I want us to see that there is such a deep well of great delight that is open to each one of us. There is a richness and a joy that we can find and experience. This isn't for the super-Christian. This is for me and it's for you. There's a closeness with God which is within our grasp, which is fuel and delight for our Christian journey. It's possible in prayer not only to experience God's love in a profound way, but also to know the voice of God and recognise that voice as he shepherds us. Now, what does that look like? Now, I read the account of... uh, uh, a prayer life of an 18th century minister called uh, Dan Steele. Uh, he wrote to his friend uh, about his own prayer life. Now, I want you just for a moment to think of your own prayer life at the moment. Just any day this week, what, was, what did your prayer life uh, look like? Just take yourself to that place, your prayer life, what does it look like? And then I'll read, let me just read Dan's account of his prayer life. He says, almost every week and sometimes almost every day, I feel the pressure of his great love that comes down on my heart in such a measure as to make me groan under an almost unsupportable plethora of joy. At such times, he unlocks every apartment of my being and flooded them with the light of his presence. The inner spot has been touched and its stoniness has been melted in the presence of Jesus, the one who is altogether lovely. Now, for some of us who are gathered here this evening, that will be a lived reality for us. And praise God uh, for that. To have the experience of God's spirit pouring the love of God into our hearts. Our smallness and God's greatness are being revealed as we're submerged under an ocean of his love. But for some of us, maybe many of us tonight, this isn't our experience. But maybe like me, you long, you long for that to be your own experience. Now, over time, I've come to realise that uh, prayer isn't about being so busy that all I can hope to do is throw water in my face like the marathon runner. That 
is too shriveled a view of what prayer offers. Prayer is much more like this. It's opening up the doors and windows of your soul to allow his presence to shine on you. For his warmth and peace to breathe life and joy into your cold heart. To hear his still, small voice and to recognize it as such. Prayer is soul food with a dear friend. It's care from a king. Adoration of a savior. It's the love of the father. So the question is, how do the marathon runners amongst us move to something more akin to table fellowship with our heavenly father? How do we move from one to the other? And Colin mentioned it this morning. I just wanted to dwell upon it uh, this evening. Uh, The answer is meditation. To have a prayer life that is a well of joy, that comes as we use meditation. And we need to regain that art, that skill. It really is the key to unlock the joy, the power and the richness of prayer. Now, meditation is a word that means so many different things to different people. As Colin reminded me this morning, Christian meditation is not emptying your mind of all thoughts. That's Eastern meditation. And that's not what we're talking about. Now, Spurgeon, when he spoke on the topic of meditation, said very bluntly to his congregation, meditation is a word that more than half of you, I fear, do not know how to spell You may know how to repeat the letters of the word, but I mean to say you cannot spell it in the reality of life. You do not occupy yourselves with any meditation. So what is meditation? Uh, If prayer is meeting with our Heavenly Father, coming before him and being invited to have close and deliberate fellowship with him, the meditation is like this. It's like a bag of shopping. Still working on that eating metaphor. If you're having somebody over for dinner, you're going to spend time choosing a menu, thinking about what to cook, thinking about the things that they would like to eat and the things that they don't like to eat. You'll think about the place setting, the lighting in the house. You'll think about the temperature, the music you're going to play. And you'll think about the things that you're going to chat about. And once you've done all of those things, then, as you've cooked, you'll enjoy fellowship with your guest. And it will be rich fellowship. A conversation, listening, and speaking. And obviously when we pray, we're not feasting on earthly food, but we're feasting on the word of God, on scripture. So meditation has its foundation In the word of God. Now precisely what this looks like varies from person to person. And you can read many, many books on this. And this evening I just want to show us one method of meditating. You may have other methods of doing it, which is absolutely fine. But this is just one uh, I thought would be really helpful. If you don't meditate, let me suggest this as a way to do it. 
Uh, I've tried to draw on the wisdom of a range of different people, Puritans, uh, Tim Chester, John Wesley, Tim Keller, Pete Gregg, Don Carson, uh, and others uh, to put this uh, together. Now, the Puritans never tired of saying that Christian meditation, biblical meditation, involves thinking upon the triune God and his word. So meditation is based on the understanding that the main way that God is going to speak to us is by his spirit and through his word. That's the main way. Uh, That is not to say that God can't speak to us in other ways, through the words of others, through images, through encounters. But the main way, the principal way that God will speak to us is by his spirit and through his word through scripture so let's uh, let's have a look at uh, what what this might look like for us so let's uh, picture yourself it's uh, monday morning maybe for many of us and it's the time of the day where you would normally set a time some time to pray okay all right are you in that place okay first thing we do obviously is we pray and we ask god to help us that he might ready our hearts, that we would hear him speak to us. Next, open our Bibles to whatever bit of scripture that you're looking at that morning. You may have reading plans uh, or whatever you're doing, but your bit of scripture for that day. Read it through a couple, three times. Now you can start to meditate. Remember that Christian meditation is not mysticism. It's not emptying your mind, it's not trying to catch a spirit, but it's rooted in the word of God by the power of God's spirit. And he calls us to look and to think about what God says. Okay? So the meditation I want to highlight has three parts. Okay? With the bit of scripture that you've read, I want us to do three things. To look, to think it out, to think it in, And to think it up. Okay? Think it out, think it in, think it up. Firstly, think it out. So look at the text that you've chosen for that morning and ask yourself, what does it mean? What does it say? Wrestle with what you've read. What is the Bible teaching us in the verses that you've read? Okay? Ponder each word. And ask yourself, why was that word chosen? What would happen to this sentence if that word wasn't there? What would happen if we had another word? Why the repetition of phrases? Maybe think what sentences might say if a word wasn't included. That's a great way to bring out what the author is showing us, what the text is actually saying, what God has revealed to us. Uh, You might want to read it out loud, put different emphasis on different words as you go through, just to see uh, if anything stands out. And ask yourself as you're reading this, what's being revealed about God in the passage? What are the characteristics of God that you see? Uh, Maybe it's his mercy, maybe it's his patience, maybe it's his compassion or his grace or his justice. What's being revealed about humanity? That's another great question to ask as you wrestle with the text. And maybe there are certain verses that look electric, that leap out, that seem really bright. Then look at those again. Look at those again. Do they really pierce your heart? Do they fill your ear, your eyes with tears? If so, dwell on those verses again and just wrestle with them. Ask yourself again. Turn them over and over in your mind. See what's inside them. 
Then having done that, ask yourself this question. What is the most important thing that this passage reveals about God and humanity? Okay, what is the most important thing this passage reveals about God and humanity? Okay, this is the hardest bit, okay, and spend time uh, doing this. And I can assure you, it won't be the, the answer that you, you will settle on. It will not be the first thing that comes to mind. It won't be the second thing that comes to mind. And it might not even be the tenth thing that comes to mind. But keep wrestling until that truth springs out. Now, earlier this year, Neil ran a series, didn't he, on how to get the most uh, out of Scripture. And I'd encourage you to grab a hold of that resource uh, and use that as a way to equip you for mining and quarrying uh, the text of the Bible. So that's the first thing that we do is we think it out. Uh, Secondly, we have to think it in. Okay? Now, having thought the passage out, we now think about our own life. Yep? Our own situation. The circumstances in our own life, our work, our friends, our health, our finances, and so on and so on. Think about both the joy in those things and the fear or the worry that's inside those things. Now think about the aspects of our life that are taking up the most emotional or spiritual energy. Take stock of our lives. And then as you've done that, as you've gathered your thoughts about where you are, what's going on in your life, then run those underneath the grid of the thinking out. Yeah, the truths that have been revealed about God, use that as a grid to look at your own circumstances. And obviously this is going to be very, very different for each one of us and it will be different uh, every day. But some illustrations to help us think what that might look like. Uh, for instance, uh, if we've seen the love of God as we've gone through the passage, as we thought the passage out, uh, consider where in our own life and circumstances, where is that love of God being revealed by us? How are the things that we're anxious or worried about, how do they look in the light of the truths that we've seen revealed as we've thought the text out? What about the hopes and the fears at this time. How do they look in the light of the truths of God and humanity as we've thought the passage out? Do our current relationships and attitudes reflect well the character and the goodness of God, the truths that we've seen as we've thought the passage out? Are our heart attitudes what we would hope them to be in the light of the things that we've thought out? And also think about the grace of God, that despite the areas, despite the areas where we're not reflecting his love, that he should still have chosen us to be his children. As you think things in, you'll see the areas of your life that aren't properly reflecting the truths that God has revealed to you by his spirit. Areas where you're living or behaving in ways that are robbing you of life in all of its fullness. Or attitudes of heart and mind that aren't consistent with the truth of who you are because Jesus died for you, because you have been brought in as a child of God. And as you think about those things, it will start to lift up in your own heart what it means for God to love you and for him to have shown that love for you in Christ. 
So as we think out and think in, we're allowing God to speak to us in our current situation. And the Spirit, he will draw our mind to his eternal word, to God's promises, his love, his care, his holiness, his mercy, his justice, his peace, and the hope we have of our need and of his care. And the more that we're able to do that, the more we will recognize God's voice speaking to us. So having thought things out, thought things in, we come to thinking things up. And this is where uh, we think of thinking things in our lives with respect to God. And this is where Martin Luther's letter to his barber is really, really helpful. Uh, He tells his barber to ask himself three questions. uh, And we can use that as a template for ourselves as too, uh, for ourselves as well. And the questions we ask are a reflection of thinking out and thinking in. Seeing God and humanity and thinking in what those truths mean for me and my situation. And thinking up is a way of drawing those all together. So the three questions. Firstly, firstly, in the light of what we've thought out and now thought in, what is there that I can give God thanks for? Second question, as we dwell on what we've thought out and thought in, where is there an area of my life that I need to confess? Thirdly, having thought out and thought in, Having thought about the things that we can praise God for and the things that we should confess, the third question is, what can I ask God for? Those three questions help us think up. What can I give thanks for? What can I confess? What can I ask God for? And having done that, you've concluded your meditation. Now it's time to pray. Meditation just gets you to the place where you can start to pray and it unlocks prayer. It opens the door to experiencing that living relationship with our Heavenly Father. That's why meditation is so unhelpful, so helpful in unlocking a rich prayer life. Because our meditation is rooted in scripture. Our prayers are informed by the spirit. Our prayers have biblical truths to ground them. And we can now bring all areas of our life before God. All the hurt, all the sadness, all the pain, and all our joys, honestly and openly. Meditation allows us to come before our Heavenly Father with humility, with thanks, and with expectation. We'll find as we come before our Heavenly Father, we'll be ready to feast, ready to listen, ready to hear. It will enrich our prayer life. You know, we spoke earlier, didn't we, about Dan Steele. Um, him knowing God pour his love into his heart. And do you remember what he said? He said, almost every week and sometimes almost every day, I feel the pressure of his great love that comes down on my heart in such a measure as to make me groan under an almost unsupportable plethora of joy. At such times he unlocks every apartment of my being and flooded them all with the light of his presence. The inner spot has been touched and its stoniness has been melted in the presence of Jesus, the one altogether lovely. And that's open to us. 
That's open to every one of us. Don't you long for that? To close, I want to I ask us to try this out. Not tonight, you'll be pleased to hear. Next week, we have prayer and praise. And we're going to be looking at Romans 8, 12 to 17. Okay, it's an amazing bit of scripture. Can I invite you over the course of this week, yeah, to try that? Think it out, think it in, think it up. Just try that, to try meditating in that way. Rather than doing it in 20 or 30 minutes in the morning, do it over the course of the week. Yeah. And then we can use that meditation, what you've seen, the way that God has spoken to you, as the basis for our evening of prayer and praise next week. That sounds like a plan. Let me pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, Father, we do thank you so much uh, for uh, your word. Uh, We thank you for the encouragement that uh, the Lord Jesus uh, departed and went to a desolate place and there he prayed. Uh, Thank you that uh, uh, through prayer uh, we can come before your throne of grace. I pray that uh, as we journey through this week, uh, as uh, we come before you in prayer, Father, would you speak to us and would you encourage our hearts? I pray that uh, we would know you as our Heavenly Father. In Jesus' name, amen.